Welcome into Studio Two. I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. And I'm Cherry Gregg. One of our favorite Philly musicians is singer-songwriter Amos Lee. We love his music, and he's coming up a little later in the hour and even performs his hit, Keep It Loose, Keep It Tight. Some of us get tight around sharks. We're also (laughs) going to talk about them today. Every summer we do hear about shark attacks, but we're going to chat with a biologist about how incredible and varied sharks are and why we should love, not fear them. But first, Cherry, it's August. It is. And every August, countless Americans go on vacation. Maybe you are one of the lucky ones who still have a trip coming up. We recently spoke to Rick Steves, the famed travel guide writer and PBS host about travel, tips for planning and avoiding crowds, finding unique places to go. And we started asking him about how the pandemic has changed tourism. Europe is my beat, so I spend about 100 days a year in Europe. I've done that ever since I was a kid, except for two years of COVID. But uh, I've been to Europe four or five times post-COVID, and uh, there's a lot of people traveling and a lot of people going to the same places. There's more and more we become sort of um, following the trends. Mm. So if a place is trendy on social media, people want to go there, it becomes more congested, more crowded, more expensive, and uh, makes it more important than ever to Think independently about where you really want to go. Um, The Europeans, again, Europe is my beat, but I think it's the same all over the world. They've learned that they can control crowds by requiring advanced uh, booking for sites. So before COVID, you know, you just went to the site and lined up. During COVID, you had to, you know, spread out the people. So they limited how many people would enter every half an hour. And now it seems they're keeping that policy, which I think is good. It limits how many people pack into a site. And it lets the people who are well-organized and make their reservations in advance walk right up and go right in. And that's, that's a, a big change. Also, staffing is, a, is an issue all over Europe, you know, in restaurants and in sites and in airports. So you have to be a good traveler so you can flex with the demands of the situation according to where they're able to staff and where they're not able to staff. And you'll find wings of museums not open that should be open. You'll have restaurants closing on certain days just because they don't have enough staff. You'll have airports that don't handle the crowds as well as they should because of staffing concerns after COVID. Rick, in general, though, does it not seem like the travel industry has been pretty elastic Like, I got the sense from reading some of the stuff that you've written recently that a lot of your favorite spots, even the mom and pops, are still there after COVID. Do you get a sense that the rebound has been pretty strong for the industry writ large? The rebound is just vicious. I mean, Hmm. it's like revenge travel. Everybody is hell-bent on getting over there and having that long-winded vacation. So uh, the numbers are back, that's for sure. In fact, I think the big discussion in 2019 was, how are you going to handle the crowds? And that's becoming the new di- the, the discussion right now. Uh, two days ago, I was in the French Riviera, and uh, we actually added a new town on the French Riviera in our guidebook, uh, Menton, M-E-N-T-O-N. It's right on the border of Italy. It's a beautiful town. We never really had it before, but Nice, which I love, is getting so crowded now. And when you have a, a very, very popular place like Venice or Barcelona or Amsterdam or, or Salzburg or, or Nice, you find that characteristic neighborhoods become filled with people going to Airbnb short-term rental kind of places. That drives the, the uh, potential earning of land up. Landlords smell an easy profit, 
they raise their rents, it drives the local people into the less characteristic suburbs and the formerly vibrant neighborhoods downtown, because people lived there, are now filled mostly with people that come in as tourists and it means there's no market to really make the characteristic shops and markets what they were, why that area was so appealing in the first place. It's not bad, but it's nowhere near what it used to be. Wow. The Ramblas in Barcelona, everybody just loves the Ramblas. Well, the last edition of my Rick Steves guidebook to Spain, it says R.I.P. Ramblas, oh, rest God. in wow. peace, because it's not what it used to be. There's a market there, but now it's not selling to the local pensioners, it's selling to tourists. So instead of you know, fava beans and, and dates, you've got exotic fruit on skewers and uh, slushies. We have an email from Peggy. She says, I appreciated Rick's app while visiting Venice, Florence, and Rome. He narrates walking tours that are interesting and easy to follow. So that's a shout out to you, Rick Steves, about um, nice. folks complimenting your work. I want to just that's take a, a, Let me just, let me explain, Cherry. That's an app that I made, which has 60 guided tours. They're self-guided tours. It's totally free. It's called Rick Steves Audio Europe, and people can download it, and then I get to walk them through my favorite historic zones and museums and galleries. It's all the information's in the guidebook, but it's nice not to have to read it. It's nice to pop it into your ears yeah. and then just be immersed in all that culture. Well, I wanted to ask you, when you're trying to plan a trip, what are some of the things you should be thinking about as far as like when you're trying to choose where to go? Because there are so many options. Well, I think it's important to not assume it's your only trip. You should assume you will return because you can never exhaust it of what it has to offer. And then you got to decide not what is, you know, people ask me, what's the hot destination? Well, what the hot destination is doesn't really matter. What destination are you dreaming of? Mm. If you've got Irish ancestry, you know, you should be going to Ireland. If, you've, if you're interested in a pilgrimage, you should be thinking about the community Santiago. If you love art, you could be going to Vienna and Paris and Madrid. Uh, so what you want to do is kind of find out why you want to travel and then know what your options are and then make a plan. One thing cool about European travel is the infrastructure is so good. Yeah. I mean, nobody flies from Barcelona to Madrid anymore. You just hop on the bullet train and you get there in two and a half hours. You go under the English Channel now in a tunnel. When you're going from London to Paris, it's 17 minutes to cross the English Channel and you do it in a tunnel. Uh, 100 miles an hour on a train that takes two and a half hours to get from Big Ben to the Eiffel Tower. I was just going from southern Spain two weeks ago to Morocco. And, you know, you walk up to the ferry terminal and you go to the window and you give them $40 and you get on the next ferry. There's a ferry every hour. And 45 minutes later, you're stepping off the boat mm. in Africa. Uh, it's just so easy and so fun. And I just love just kind of taking advantage of the infrastructure that moves people around. Can I ask problems. a follow-up question about that, actually, because uh, you're a big proponent of visiting second cities, so maybe doing Porto instead of Lisbon and Portugal. Uh, you mentioned earlier that, that new town you just put on in yep. the guidebook in the French Riviera. Over the years that you've been doing this, do you think it's become easier to visit second cities, third cities, fourth cities, fifth cities in Europe? Have they become more accessible, or were we always just glossing over them because uh, because we weren't paying attention? Yeah, well, Avi, I wouldn't visit third and fourth and fifth tier cities because <laughs> we, we, we Americans have the shortest vacations in the rich world, and we want to see the great stuff. But I would make a case 
that if you've got five days in Edinburgh or four days in Lisbon, you might want to take one of those days and go to the second city nearby. Uh, Glasgow uh, is just 45 minutes away from Edinburgh, and uh, Porto is just an hour or two north of of Lisbon. And those are cities that have none of the crowds, none of the intensity, uh, none of the congestion at the sites, and they've got really edgy, new, creative restaurants. They've got wonderful street art. They're, a lot of times they're kind of former industrial cities that were left in the dust by the more glamorous city, but then they leaped into the foreground with their uh, creative sort of um, economic energy. And I just feel a, a real liveliness when you go to the second cities mm. because the economy is not based on tourism. So think about Lyon uh, as opposed to Paris. Think about Belfast as opposed to Dublin. Think about Tacoma as opposed to Seattle. Very <laughs> When I go to the Pacific Northwest, I'll think about it. Yeah, very <laughs> interesting. And if you are just joining us, we are speaking with famed travel guide and public television host Rick Steves about how to get the most out of travel. We got an email from Erica. She says she is flying to England in August. She says... Quote, on the plane, we'll be in regular class, not first or business class. Does Mr. Steves have any tips for making flights pleasant? And I want to piggyback because I'm a tall person, (laughs) (laughs) 5'11", and my travel partner is 6'4". And any tips on how to make regular class more pleasant for in different situations here? Well, I don't know how, how fancy Erica is, but I've never flown anything but what she calls regular class. I don't know what business class is like, and I've never been near first class other than to walk by it. Wow. I, I go economic. I, I'll go as cheap as I can get and save money to uh, buy a nice dinner or have a local guide or have some experiences in Europe. It's, there's no suffering on an airplane. You're flying 600 miles an hour safely over the Atlantic. Uh, <laughs> Positive the attitude there. <laughs> well, like it's, yeah, it's, just, it's just the mark of a good traveler. I, I don't want to complain about the food. You know, I just flew back on Lufthansa from Frankfurt. I was on the plane for nine or ten hours, Lufthansa, Frankfurt to Seattle direct. And, um, you know, my food came cold, but uh, I loved it and I had a great flight and I kept myself busy. (laughs) For me, what you want to do is, you know, have constructive things to do while you're flying. I think it's important to get a nap during the flight because you Mm -hmm. got to get over jet lag when you land in Europe. You want to hit the ground running and uh, dress comfortably on the plane, you know, but... um, it's, it's a remarkable thing to be able to fly to Europe in 10 hours. Um, you know, if you're rich and you got $1,000 to throw away, well, <laughs> get, get yourself a little extra leg room. But I'm six foot two, and I've been to Europe 40 times, and it's always cattle car. <laughs> All right. Well, okay. Can I put you on the spot, Rick, about Sardinia? Because we have an email uh, from a listener named Robin. I don't know the last time you've been to the island of Sardinia, off the mainland of Italy there. But um, Robin says uh, that they are going in September. It's a large island. They only have seven days to explore. And Robin would love to know what you recommend as a must-see while still having relaxing time at the beautiful beaches. Right. All right. Putting you on the spot there. Sardinia, go. Well, Sardinia, go. All right. Well, <laughs> for one thing, Sardinia is a, is an island that looks inward. Uh, until uh, a couple generations ago, they were afraid of malaria and pirates on the coastline. So they didn't even have anything on the coast. Mm. The coastal places you see now are 
post-malaria age, they are modern resorts, and they're fun. So most people go to Sardinia for the beach and the, and the scene on the, on the coast. But the history and the culture is inland. The cuisine on Sardinia is more about sheep cheese than it is about seafood. And uh, if you have seven days on Sardinia, that's an awful lot of time to be on an island like Sardinia if you're a sightseer. But I would say get a car so you can explore the interior and um, you know, let that complement your time on the beach. Can I follow up on something you mentioned earlier? I think you were alluding to this concept of, of herding, where people see some restaurant listed on TripAdvisor with really good ratings or a very Instagrammable um, vista, and they all want to go to the same one or two places. And it got right. me thinking about how social media has changed the way we travel. Do you have any yeah. larger reflections on the influence <laughs> of social media on European travel? Yeah, a lot of people are wired these days just to go with crowdsourcing information. So if somebody who's never been to Paris says, this place has the best hot chocolate and these are macarons to die for, <laughs> how do they know? They've only been there once. Mm -hmm. uh, and they write about it like an expert and other people who are so enamored with crowdsourcing information. You know, they say, oh, this person goes to Tex-Mex in Paris. In fact, Tex-Mex is number one on TripAdvisor. Uh, so many people are eating Tex-Mex in Paris. Why? because it, it gamed the system and it figured out a way to become number one on TripAdvisor and then all the other herd mentality people go to the Tex-Mex restaurant. Mm. Um, it's just not how I you know, choose my, my precious vacation priorities. Uh, of course, I'm a guidebook writer, so I have a different mentality, uh, but I find every night, I just got back from 30 days in Spain and in France, and every, every night, exactly, completely every night, I had a local guide and I looked for restaurants. And I found perfect restaurants, family-run restaurants, proud restaurants that really know the local cuisine, restaurants that have small handwritten menus on the door, handwritten because they change with the market, uh, in one language because they cater to locals, not tourists. These are the winning places. And there's almost no coincidence between what's listed high in a crowdsourcing site and what places I choose to list in my guidebook. Hmm. One thing I do really like is the being aware of what gets a Michelin rating. I don't go for the Michelin star places, but there's a lower category of Michelin called Bib Gourmand. And these are the casual, not pretentious kind of really expensive restaurants, but just really quality restaurants that are affordable and characteristic. But uh, we are just, you know, we're hoping to get herd uh, immunity from a COVID point of view. Well, we've already got herd mentality, so it's, it's a realistic uh, uh, goal, I suppose. But <laughs> you find nowadays weird, random commotions of people. And you look at that and you go, I've been coming here for 20 years. I've never seen a crowd on that pier. What's going on? And then a local person says, that's the Instagram crowd. Yes. And this year, yes. everybody has to go to that pier and take a, a photograph with that palm tree behind them and that mountain in the distance. And I see that in a number of places. I was just in Zermatt in Switzerland, and there was a construction going on, and there was a little bridge that crosses the ravine. Why are they having a construction site on the bridge? Well, the Instagram people were causing a traffic jam every morning when they stood there to get their shot with the Matterhorn, and they have to make a little theater for them to stand on so they don't stop traffic. Oh, my uh, goodness. This is just bizarre. I want to read this email from Lisa from Wayne, who piggybacks on just what you just said. She says, I went to Spain and, and she says, my big issue was the behavior of fellow tourists who were clearly trying to become social media influencers. They caused long lines, bottlenecks. They cared a lot more about getting pictures of themselves. Uh, I was just in Spain. I think Lisa was talking about Spain there and I was in my favorite museum in Spain, the Prado in Madrid. 
mm-hmm. arguably the best collection of paintings in Europe, and they are very, very strict about not allowing any photographs, not even a, huh. an iPhone or a, a, a phone photograph. If you take the phone out of your pocket, a guard will say, no phones, put the wow. phone away. And it was so strict, and at first I was put off by it, but then I realized, what a beautiful experience. Everybody was in the museum, including me, not worried about selfies and all that kind of stuff, but just enjoying the art. And a lot of times as a tour guide, you know, that's my main thing is we take about, you know, 30,000 people around Europe every year on 1,200 tours, and everybody wants to get photographs of all the music on all the meals and this kind of stuff. And if we're in a concert, I usually say, okay, everybody, this is the piece you get to take photographs on. Now, out of respect to the musicians, put your phones, put your cameras away, and be in the moment. That's what we need to do in our travels is to be in the moment. Get your photograph, but don't let everything be going through the, you know, the screen of your phone. You really want to be there. And that's a a serious challenge for us these days. And it's going to get more so going forward. Yeah. And a quick comment from Jeff who says, love your guidebooks, use them for two decades and appreciate how you connect people with local cultures. Keep traveling, man. That's from Jeff. (laughs) And that ties into my question, because one of the things you said earlier was to find a local travel guide. Um, if you're a person who may not be a sophisticated traveler like yourself, Rick, and you want to go off the beaten path and you want to safely find a local travel guide, give us some tips for finding someone that'll take you away from the touristy sites and, and get right. a little bit of the local flair and culture. Well, it's just hiring a local guide. I mean, that's a whole occupation in Europe is being a tour guide. It's an occupation anywhere. I mean, I took my family to Cuba and we hired a guide for four days. Maybe we paid $100 a day for the guide. I mean, that's that's a one month's wages every day for that guide. He was thrilled to have that gig. He met us at the hotel at breakfast. He was our sidekick, our translator, our shopping consultant, our historian, our, our right-hand man the whole time, and he essentially tucked us in at night. It was the best $100 a day the four of us could spend to have a local guide. The interesting thing is guides get less expensive where they're more valuable. You don't need a guide in Scotland where they cost $600 a day. You need a guide in Morocco where it costs $100 a day or in Turkey or in Cuba. It's just sort of having a friend. And I'm just paying them to be my friends, you know, and we can anybody can do that. How do you find those guides? Um, they're online. They're, uh, TripAdvisor has a things to do section, which is really good because it lists any guides that are small businessmen. When I find a guide, I put them in my guidebook. And um, every city in Europe, that uh, where I, if somebody has a Rick Steves guide, they will have the email and the phone number of all the guides I've used in that city that I think are good. But a lot of people can't afford that. And that's why I book the guides and I spend the time picking their brains. And then I put their information and I design it to an American's needs and put it in my guidebook. And uh, for most travelers, that works really well. As always, sage advice from the travel authority, Rick Steves public television host, best-selling guidebook author. And I have to say, Cherry, that conversation and another hour we spent looking at the impact of Airbnbs on communities and cities has made me totally rethink how I think about travel. I think it did the same for me, too. Definitely giving it more thought. Every day our minds are blown. Every day. Blown. (laughs) Coming up, Philly musician Amos Lee talks about his inspirations and plays some tunes. We'll be right back with more Studio 2. Hi. 
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Studio Two. I'm Cherry. Wish I had a voice like that, Greg. I'm Avi Wolfman. Aaron, you don't want to hear me <laughs> try to hit that note. Uh, that is the melodic, beautiful, unique voice of Philadelphia singer-songwriter Amos Lee. That song, Colors, off his very first album, which was self-titled. You know, Avi, we've had some great musical talents on our show so far, and having Amos come in was one of the most truly memorable conversations. We talked with him last month ahead of his concert with the Philadelphia Orchestra at the Man. You grew up in Kensington and in Cherry Hill, lived here basically your whole life, right? That must be, I mean, define, try to describe as a personal milestone what it means for you to play with the Philadelphia Orchestra. It's awesome. Um, I think my first musical experience was on the Al Albert show, which if you're an old school Philly person, you know <laughs> okay. what that means. Phil, Phil, it. <laughs> it was a kid's variety show. I didn't win anything, but I had just some real Philly experiences. I played recorder on stage at the Settlement Music School, but that was pretty much the, the root and the branch of my musical education. So to take the stage with the orchestra, it's just mind-bending, first of all, but it's just wonderful to get to celebrate with my family and my friends and Philadelphia people who have been there from the very beginning. Like, this city is the best. I love our culture. I love our community. And I love our music scene. So it's just an, it's an honor and just a gift to be able to do this. Yeah, and I, I love your story, by the way. You taught second grade. Uh, you were a teacher at Bethune Elementary. Yeah. And you kind of fell into music a little bit later. You didn't grow up thinking, I'm going to be a musician. Mm -mm. Can you tell us the story of the day you determined, like, music will be my life? It was a slow burn. Um, I started writing songs in college. Um, I went to school for English and education. I wanted to teach reading. I always just wanted to give back and help give some love back that I felt I got a lot of. And uh, so I went to college, did all my schooling, got done, got a job at Bethune, did literacy stuff with kids, loved the kids. Mm. Such great, amazing, resilient, beautiful minds. For me, the teaching was a bit more difficult because mm. I'm pretty ADD and I'm, I'm disorganized. So I'm good at one-on-one. -on -one. I was good helping the kids, but it was just I wasn't really a classroom teacher I could have but I didn't and at the time I was just starting to play more songs and get involved in open mics here in Philly and I just fell in love with people and with the music and just figuring out how to live a more authentic artistic life and it wasn't falling into it it was diving into it I dove all the way in I was over my head and I just kept going and I'm still going so it, it was a surprise for me like if I did a thing at Hill Friedman Academy. I don't know if you all know mm -hmm. Hill Friedman. Northwest yeah. Philly, yeah. right? Yeah. Amazing school. My yeah. friend Andrew Lipke, who did a lot of the arrangements for the orchestra show, he teaches a music class there. And I went in and did some stuff with the kids. 
And I was like, listen, when I was in high school, I had no idea I'd be doing this. If you told me you'll be a professional musician, I would have told you, A, I have no idea how you even <laughs> yeah. think that because I've never even picked an instrument up. Wow. So, our, you know, the paths that we have before us are, are not always as um, spectacular as we think they are, but also they're not as obvious. Yeah. Like, I wanted to be a basketball player. That was my dream, okay? Hey, don't give up on that. <laughs> no, I'm fully given up. I don't even play. Okay. I won't even put sneakers on anymore. But, uh, you know, I wasn't a musical, musically-minded person. I would listen mm-hmm. to the Power Nine at Nine every night, which was our R&B station. I'd sing along. Luther Vandross was my guy. That was, mm, that was who I Luther. based all of my singing off of in the beginning, which is a ludicrous thing for like a 12-year-old to say. But, <laughs> you know, I've just been having fun with it, honestly. It's, it's just a, a weird, awesome, completely taxing lifestyle, but it's worth it. I get to meet people like y'all. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I didn't know that was a perk, but I'm glad it, it is. is. Yeah, um, for sure. I wanted to ask about your musical training because um, – you were posting on social media about the show you have coming coming up, and you said that you're sort of a new convert to classical music, mm-hmm. and you even admitted some of it still goes over your head, but you feel the power of it. And, mm. and in that post, you also said you have no music education outside of one guitar lesson. How did you learn to write songs? I'm still learning, honestly. It is such a process, you know? Like, So the first time I ever got a guitar... I was like everybody else, which is, you know, you can't really play it. A lot of people get discouraged early on in, in music, and I'm like, just keep going. If, honestly, if I can do it, you, seriously, you can do it. I have no reason to be doing this, but the first time I got between two chords, which was like C to A minor, uh, I wrote a song. I just had it in me, and I didn't know. I, it was just sort of like, oh, okay, cool. Th- this is what you do with a musical instrument. You write things, and you sing them. So it wasn't learning. It was just sort of an unfolding that became a life. You wrote a whole song, C to A minor. Uh, I've written a lot of songs, C to A minor. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I don't need more than two chords, bro. I mean, if you come to the the orchestra, will probably not love that part. But, you know, <laughs> I, I'm pretty simple. Um, you know, if I can throw in a, like a fun little jazzy chord here and there, I feel like I've done my job. Um, yeah, I don't have. I had one guitar lesson. I've never taken any singing lessons. I've learned a lot from my friends. Yeah. And specifically about classical music, I have a lot of friends who are really just honestly geniuses. I, I don't say that lightly either. They're really genius people. And they'll just send me stuff. And we have such a great classical music world here in, in Philly because yeah. of Curtis. And because of our orchestra, which has is a lot of people consider the best orchestra in the country. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot for for Philly. You know, like we're we're a tough town. You know, we're we're a tough group of folks and we work for everything we get. But we also have these beautiful elevated things in our city, quote unquote, elevate. I consider it all elevated. But we have these things that are thought of in the canon of culture as more elevated and we we really have everything in this town it's the best city in america that's just me i mean look i, I know we just did the mayor race so i can't <laughs> run but i really do think it's great hey four more years and listening to your music i noticed that your sound varies literally song to song in some cases depending on the album depending on song it can range from funk to soulful jazz to r&b i love that you love luther because mm-hmm. i love luther too mm-hmm. um you were mentored by both the late Bill Withers mm. and John Prine. 
um, different sounds, both very pure, both both very simple. How do you characterize yourself as an artist, or can you, or do you like being oh, the yeah. type of person that cannot be characterized? I'm fine. Characterize me if you feel the need to. I'm happy <laughs> to get whatever's there. Um, I think part of the the thing that's been difficult is categorizing me and putting me in a genre because if you're in country you get the country crowd if you're in r&b you can get the r&b crowd if you're in hip-hop you got a genre i do a lot of stuff i'm Mm -hmm. eclectic which i'm fine with it's just what i love like if i made you a playlist it would be everything from mendelssohn to the dixie hummingbirds to coltrane to erica badu to, to it would be everywhere and that's the music i love that's the stuff i respond to um, but yeah, with Bill and John, um, you know, John Prine was my favorite songwriter. He was like the reason why I do that. Like yeah. the reason why. And Bill was another person that I just knew his tunes and mm-hmm. I met him and I was like, I just, man, thank you for existing. Cause he was just like, not about nonsense. He was just about like making beautiful stuff. And then he stepped away from music for, for the rest of his life and just lived, but he lived fully and like deeply. I don't think Bill cared about being classified at all. In fact, I think that's part of what drove him away. Um, he was such a unique songwriter. There's mm-hmm. nobody who's ever written like Bill Withers. And he would probably tell you too that his limitations were also part of the his genius. And I think Prine would say the same and I kind of in that way my limitations I think have also created a place for me to exist comfortably um as a songwriter because I don't overthink it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um I can just play one chord or two chords and and feel through a story without feeling the need to change stuff a lot. So if you think about Bill, you know, like Mhm. Mhm. Grandma's hand clapping church on Sunday morning. One chord. Mm. Now, he does change the chord a little bit, but he doesn't care about that. He wants your heart, and he wants to tell you a story. And so does Prine. And that's where I live with both of those guys. So there are other songwriters who do have an incredible amount of musical sophistication or chord knowledge. Like if you listen to Joni Mitchell, it's, you, you don't know what journey you're going on, but you're going on a journey. With Bill, it's like settle in and get this story in your soul. Is there a song of yours that you feel really exemplifies that type of songwriting that's really like living in a chord or two chords that, I mean, that really stands out you to know, you know the first tune that ever came out for me on a record was a song called keep it loose keep it tight and it's three chords well it's really four but um this one was really super simple straightforward like i was sitting backstage somewhere in scotland and had a guitar and again like the wonder of music is what inspires me still does so I started playing this chord, which to me is fancy, but to someone who doesn't know music, it's not fancy. And I just walked it up because I didn't know what else to do and walked it down, and walked it up. And then I just come to, a, come to a place where there feels like there's some momentum. And then the melody, if you listen to the melody, it's just the same as the guitar. Well, I walked over the bridge into the city where I live, saw my old landlord. Now we both said hello, there was nowhere else to go, it's rent I couldn't afford. 
Now relationships change, so I think it's kind of strange. Money makes a man grow. Well, some people they claim if you get enough fame, you live over the rainbow. Oh, over the rainbow. But the people on the street, out on buses, out on feet, we all got the same blood flow. Iron society. Every dollar got a deed. We all need a place, and we can go. Feel over the rainbow. But sometimes we forget what we've got. Who we are, Lord, and we are not. I think we've got a chance. Make it right if you keep it loose. Yeah, keep it tight. Keep it tight. Last verse. I'm in love with a girl who's in love with the world, and I can't help but to follow. Though I know someday she is bound to fly away and stay over the rainbow. Gotta learn how to let it go. Over, but sometimes we forget who we've got, who we are, Lord, and who we are not. There is so much more in love than black and white. Keep it loose now, child, and keep it tight. Keep it loose now, child. Keep it tight. Lord, keep it tight. Oh, keep it tight. Hey, yeah. Oh. On clapping in the studio. Yes. Can't help ourselves. <laughs> so beautiful. This is another I love my job day at <laughs> work. I, I got to ask you sort of about your songwriting because um, I read somewhere that your albums, many times you write songs about other people to show mm. your empathy. Mm. But then one of your recent albums, Dreamland, mm. was more about you mm. and your life. Mm. Why? Recently, did you decide mm. to start telling your own life story and and of the healing nature of music? Because music has been very healing for you. I was actually thinking about this this morning. I've been writing a lot of songs lately, and there's sometimes both. There's sometimes my story and other people's stories. I don't tend to write entirely biographic songs. Mm-hmm. Probably for a lot of reasons. One, it doesn't feel that compelling to me. I like nuance in the storytelling, but I also want it to be a shared experience. And the more that I can bring someone else's story into it, the more likely it is it can be shared. That's my feeling. I was thinking about this latest group of songs, and this applies to some of the tunes on Dreamland. It's like therapy. Mm -hmm. And when I have my head deep into the songs, I'm reliving all these emotions and it's like, I don't know if any, if, if either of y'all have been to therapy. I, I'm, I, it's a very personal yeah. question to ask to, to, mm-hmm. to a couple of folks. But you're raw. 
when you come out and when you're in therapy, you're raw. And so when I'm writing these songs and I'm living with them every day, it's the same feeling as being in therapy. So I may be thinking about, you know, a love that was lost or a friend that I lost or a joyful experience that I have to let go of because that's what our life is. You know, it's a series of events that are incredible or terrible and they always just fade away. <laughs> so the songwriting for me is is just a cathartic way to get into the emotions and into the feelings of myself and the things that come into my life. Backtracking a bit to the show. Hey, thanks for interviewing me, by the way. This is this is really great. I've never been on WHYY before. Are you no. Your hometown? Whoa, First whoa, time whoa, whoa. ever. First of all, I'm going to excoriate WHYY for that, right? Never. Now. But, it's but, wild. I mean, this was the station I grew up listening yes. to when my... My mom was like, okay, now it's time to learn. <laughs> it made you listen to And it. when we saw <laughs> you were going to be here, yeah. we had to bring you in. So, yeah. so I actually want to ask about that hometown aspect because this is a sort of a hometown moment for you this week, playing with the orchestra. Um, and it made me reflect on your career and how you have become so associated with the place that you grew up and you are so loved here. And whether you think your career would have unfolded dramatically differently if you had permanently relocated to one of those music meccas, Mm. Nashville, L.A., Mm. uh, New York. Um, Do you think it would have been a very different career if if you were not here now? Um, I don't know. I mean, that's I could take that journey like do a meditation or something and think about it. But I don't I don't think it would be very different other than. Like, the people that I know from Philadelphia are just so awesome. Like, I was inspired to write in the beginning because of the songwriters and art coming out of Philly, whether it was Black Lily, The Roots, um, or just the singer-songwriters going to Ortlieb's and listening to jazz. Like, this is a music mecca, as far as I'm concerned. It may not have a lot of industry, but if you're a music maker, this is a mecca. And I tell all of my friends... I tell my friends from Nashville to move to Philly. Yeah. I'm like, if you really want to get into your business, come here. If you want to be around business, go there. Wow. Interesting. That's deep. And, and I know that you had Sixth and Lombard in one of your videos. Oh, yeah. It was very Philly-centric. Is there a song that you love that you think you bring lots of Philly to? Uh, loose Tight is the song I just played, Keep It Loose, Keep It Tight, is a song distinctly about Philadelphia, the early days. And it's about sitting on a milk crate and thinking about your life in front of your house, you know, Um, and walking over the Ben Franklin or whichever bridge you choose. Maybe you choose the Tecone Palmyra. I don't know. But um, (laughs) it's just that song is very reflective to me about Philly. Um, I feel like there's a there's a legendary drummer named James Gadsden who played with Bill Withers for a bunch of years. He's played on everything. Um, one of my favorite people on the planet. And I was recording my third record, which was called Last Days at the Lodge, and he was the drummer on the session. And uh, we did a tune. I think we did this song called Won't Let Me Go, which is like a more R&B song. And he was like, I got and James has played with everybody like Marvin Gaye, the Jackson Five. He played with Bill Withers, everybody. He's the dude. And he was like, "Yo, man, there's just something in the water in Philly because y'all come out of there with something that nobody else has." And I, I really do feel that way. And to just answer both of your questions, sort of in one point, um, you know, this is where we are. We mm-hmm. are in Philly, and if you don't feel it, you ain't here. That's how I feel. Like, I feel this city very much when I'm here. Like, I get off the plane and I'm like, I'm home. 
and it inspires me. I've I've written in other towns too. I've been to other towns. There's amazing music everywhere, you know, but there's just nothing like this place. And that was our conversation, complete with live music, of course, with Amos Lee. His latest album is My Ideal, a tribute to Chet Baker Sings. Coming up, we are talking about sharks with a New Jersey biologist and why they get such a bad rap. And we're closing with Amos Lee performing with you. Wanna see another summer sunset with you? Welcome back. This is Studio Two. I'm Avi Wolfman-Erend. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Most of us are afraid of sharks, thanks in part to the movie Jaws. And whenever there's a shark attack at a beach, it gets a lot of national coverage. But the truth is, shark attacks are very rare. There were only 57 unprovoked attacks last year around the world and only about 10 deaths. So that means you're actually more likely to die on a bike, in a car, or from fireworks. In fact, 75 times more mm. likely. But our mark on sharks is enormous. People kill more than 100 million every year. So we wanted to better understand this animal swimming off our coast. Dominique Didier, professor of general biology, aquatic biology, and ichthyology at Millersville University, joined us to tell us all about sharks and why they deserve our love and respect. So, um, Dominique, most people think they know what a shark is, you know, um, but but when I read that there were hundreds of different classes of, you know, uh, types of shark, I was shocked. So could you explain what a shark is and some of the characteristics that make a shark a shark? Sure. Happy to do so. So when you say shark, most people put in their mind right away, like a great white, hammerhead, maybe a nurse shark or a lemon shark. And those are sharks, but the group that sharks belong to is a group known as the chondrichthys. It's a fancy word for saying cartilaginous fishes. And so all of the fish that have a skeleton made of cartilage, which is a very flexible material, unlike bone, which is very stiff, um, all the fish that have cartilage belong in this group. And that includes not just the, what I call the sharky sharks that we all think about, <laughs> but things like stingrays and oh. skates, which are very flat. Um, and also my personal favorite, which are the ghost sharks. And oh. that's really where I study these ghost sharks. Um, so they're very diverse. There's over a thousand species within this large cartilage fish group. Um, and they're not all just like sharks that you think about on TV or in cartoons, but some of them are flat. Some of them are very tiny. Um, and the ghost sharks are very strange looking. So look up a ratfish or a chimera and you'll Ooh, be amazed. Well, I had a whole another list of questions, but now I got to know what a ghost shark is. What's a ghost? A ghost shark. Are they hard to see? Oh, yes. They live in the very deep sea. Um, and they've not been well studied because they're so hard to find. They live in all the oceans. But when I talk deep sea, I'm talking about thousands of meters. That is thousands and thousands of feet, like let's say 3,000, 4,000 feet deep. So you're not going to just catch these on a hook and line. Mm. Well, you know, you like many shark lovers argue that humans should not be afraid of sharks. Instead, we should 
like, no, love sharks because they are important to the ecosystem. I want you to lay out your argument there, how we should love sharks. Go ahead. All right. Well, we should just love them because they are beautiful animals worthy of love. But um, what we have to remember is that, you know, the ocean is an ecosystem just like on land. Maybe many of you took a biology class and you learned that, you know, the animals eat the grass and other animals eat those animals and the bugs and the hawks at the top eating the small mammals and so on. And we learn about these food chains and the important interconnections. And it's very real to us because we can see it every day. Walk out your front door. You can see all those interactions. But the ocean is mysterious. When you look at that blue water, it's hard to see and understand that all these things that live in the ocean are interconnected. Everything from the tiny little single cell plankton and then the little organisms that eat those and the little fish that eat those and then the bigger fish that eat those and so on. Well, sharks are at the top of that food chain, if you will, or that food web. So by having animals that have different roles in the ecosystem, you maintain balance in that ecosystem. But if we wipe out all those sharks, which are those top predators, that throws things in imbalance. Then you have too many of another predator that might eat the fish that we want to eat, etc. So we have to remember that all those animals are there and play a, an important role in maintaining that ecosystem. Let's be a little parochial here and talk about the sharks that live off of our coast, the Atlantic Ocean, off of, you know, New Jersey, New York, the Mid-Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Are those shark populations generally stable, declining, rising? What do we know? They're declining. Um, absolutely. Uh, research has shown, and this was some significant research published quite a few years ago, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was 2005 in Science Magazine, and they looked at uh, records of particularly the large pelagics, white sharks, um, the mako sharks, the blue sharks, um, tiger sharks, you know, the big ones that migrate and live all along this eastern coast, and found that every single population had declined. Mm-hmm. And we're talking declines on average of 60%. Wow. What, so were the, we're what were the main causes? The main cause is overfishing. We're killing them. Mm. Really? Because you don't think of of us eating, well, maybe, maybe people do, but you don't think of it as like a, a big menu item, but yet they're being killed by humans. Yeah, well, they we do eat them. Um, you know, uh, mako shark is uh, on yeah. menus, yeah. but we're not big shark eaters in this country, no. But what really killed them? Well, first of all, um, a lot of people had fear of them, so they wanted to go out and hunt them, like the white shark after the movie Jaws. Mm. Um, but they're also, you know, because they're large and you know very fantastic looking. I mean, a big game fisherman who yeah. doesn't want to. Them, yeah. who doesn't want to go out and you know tackle an 800 pound mako and land it and win a prize so there were these huge huge shark fishing tournaments that used to go on um scientists have really worked hard to eliminate those or have them catch and release um but at a time there was a time when boat after boat would land these you know i'm talking 800 pound sharks and then they would have a big garbage truck there and they would just throw them in the garbage wow. truck wow. maybe they'd cut off the head and keep the jaws and things like that but was a horrible waste of animals. Yeah. And so I, I want to tell you, I know that shark human interactions are fairly rare, but it seems like we're having more. Um, could you talk about why it's with the shark population going down? It seems like we're having more interactions and, and what we as humans should do to avoid these interactions. Well, what we have to remember is if, if you look at graphs that show 
increasing numbers of people on vacation and increasing interactions mm. with sharks, they directly correlate. So yeah. one, we're in their habitat. More and more pe people are vacationing, going to the beach, going to the shore. We just have more population. I mean, 50% of our population lives within like 100 miles of a coastline. So um, we're living near their environment and in, and going in their environment for recreation, for swimming, you know, scuba diving, et cetera. So that's one. We're encountering them. Um, and number two, and this is where we don't have as much data, but um, I'm sure if you've looked at the news, you're seeing, you know, um, information about the heat waves and climate change mm -hmm. and the ocean temperatures rising. So we're affecting their environment in diverse ways. Um, and so we still don't quite understand how that's going to affect their behavior and how that's going to affect where they move, where is their prey. So I think there's a combination of factors that are influencing these changes um, in why we encounter them more. Lastly, I'll just add too, we have access to news 24 seven, mm, a right. million different mm, right. pictures, streaming, Instagram, photographs, retweeting, reposting. So that also kind of heightens that awareness. We, you know, one story gets like five. Yeah, it, get, it, get it gets amplified. Yeah, so exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just about 30 seconds. Just want to geek out for a second. Give me one thing that's happening right now in your field that really excites you. Something we're learning that's new. Oh my gosh, there's so much that we're learning. Uh, one thing that that I really am involved in is describing new species. Mm. We're finding new species all the time. Wow. New species of ghost sharks. Um, I've described with my colleagues 17 new species. I mean, just in you know the last two decades. Um, so, and we're finding new species of sharks, new species of stingray. So, I think what to me is very exciting is all this diversity that's out there that we had no idea about and that we're just learning about. So I guess to me, that's, I guess that is kind of geeked out, but that's what excites me. That is exciting. That is extremely exciting. And we're so excited that you joined us today. That is Dominique <laughs> Didier, professor of general biology, aquatic biology, and ichthyology at Millersville University. Thanks for being on Studio Two. Well, thank you. And Avi, I think the jury's in now. I think I like sharks. You like sharks. I like sharks. There you go. <laughs> and we love all of you, our <laughs> listeners. This is the end of our show today. Our producers, Debbie Builder, Paige Marie Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. For more of our show, head to whyy.org slash Studio 2 or download us wherever you get your podcasts. From Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia, I am Avi Wolfman Arendt. And I am Cherry Gregg. Be sure to rate and review. And thank you so much for joining us. Never a trace of now, the sidewalk, ooh, sunny morning.